Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. It had been four years since Joseph Gedeon had left his wife and two daughters. He hadn't lost touch with them completely in the meantime. He and his estranged wife, Mary, stayed friendly. They sometimes had holiday meals together with their girls. Joseph had never fully reestablished himself after he left. He bounced from one boarding house to another, while Mary and the girls rented places big enough to rent out a couple of rooms to similar boarders. When Joseph was his most down and out, he would swing by Mary's and use her bathtub because his rentals sometimes would only have small sinks inside of the rooms, no access to showers or tubs. But on Easter Sunday, 1937, things were supposed to be gearing up for a change. Joseph had been to Mary's apartment two days prior, he'd taken a leisurely bath, and then he'd had an important talk with his wife. He was happy to hear she was on the same page. The two would reconcile. It was time. It wasn't about being passionately in love. It was just about a partnership. Life was easier together. And clearly, any daydreams either one had harbored about meeting a better mate had long fizzled. Turns out the grass isn't always greener. Today was going to be a special day because Joseph and Mary planned to share the news with their two daughters, Ethel and Veronica, and those two were going to be thrilled. Ethel was a 24-year-old adult now, married to a man named Joseph Kudner. Veronica, nicknamed Ronnie, had been briefly married too, though that was less about love and more about rebelling against her parents. Either way, Ronnie's union had been annulled years earlier. Now age 20, Ronnie still lived with her mom, plus two boarders who rented rooms in their shared walk-up apartment. Not that Ronnie was without prospects. She was a looker a model even, and was getting regular work posing for artists. Some of her highest profile work was on the covers of pulp detective magazines, where she would pose seductively as a doomed damsel in distress. But when Joseph rang the bell to Mary's apartment, no one answered. Soon, Ethel and her husband arrived. Maybe Mary and Ronnie had gone to the Easter Day Parade and just hadn't come home yet, they wondered. Ethel was wearing new shoes and didn't want to climb four flights of stairs if her mom and sister weren't home, so she and her husband waited in the lobby while Dad Joseph made the trek. Inside a bedroom, he spotted his new daughter splayed across a bed. He could tell by her fixed stare, her stiff pose, and her blue skin that she was long dead. In a separate bedroom, a male boarder Joseph only knew as the Englishman was also dead, apparently killed in his sleep when his head was punctured repeatedly by something long and sharp. Joseph ran downstairs with the horrifying news. Ethel sobbed, where's mama? Joseph said he hadn't seen her, so she must have run to get help. He called police in the meantime, just in case. 
Historian and author Harold Schechter. The police look around and notice that there's something underneath the bed. Mary's corpse was shoved beneath the bed upon which Ronnie lay slain. Soon, the whole country knew about New York City's Easter Sunday Massacre, a triple homicide that sparked one of the biggest manhunts in the city's history and highlighted deadly shortcomings in the nation's mental health care system. Had Ronnie Gideon not been a model, it's hard to know if her death would have made headlines with the same ferocity, even if she had been killed as part of a brutal triple homicide on a peaceful Easter Sunday. She was lower class, after all. And, as reporters quickly ferreted out, the recent recipient of a quote-unquote illegal surgery, vague language that everyone understood meant she'd become pregnant out of wedlock and found a doctor willing to perform an abortion. But she was pretty. She wore her hair short and pin-curled, a gentle wave hugging cherubic cheeks. Straight on in clothes, she was probably more cute than beautiful, but a lot of her work was in stunning profile, often with few garments in the mix. This was risque stuff for the era. In 1937, a young woman who posed naked was regarded as really little more than a prostitute. This immediately casts Ronnie's character in a very, very dubious light. If you're a Crimes of the Century's regular, you might recognize that voice as friend of the podcast and prolific true crime writer Harold Schechter. Back in 2014, he wrote a book about the case, the title of which I'll hold off on sharing for a few minutes. Instead of chatting with Harold myself this time, I tapped previous interviews he gave closer to the time of his research. For example, in an episode of A Crime to Remember titled Such a Pretty Face, he explained, The medical examiner concludes that both Veronica and Mary had been strangled. Ronnie's character came into question because of her provocative poses. Yet those pictures for which she posed also ensured her case would be splashed on front pages across the country. Newspapers loved nothing more than running semi-nude images alongside their crime stories, and readers loved nothing more than buying those papers while being all judgy McJudgerson about the photos they'd bought them for. To illustrate just how far the story reached, the very first headline I found in 1937 about the case was on the front page of the Davenport, Iowa Daily Times, a small newspaper nearly 1,000 miles from New York, New York, where the crime occurred. Ronnie, dressed in what appears to be a swimsuit, is featured in a photograph above the fold. That newspaper, by the way, was the first Metro to ever print my byline, though by the time it did, it was known by its current name, the Quad City Times. Now, in that initial coverage came word straight away that a suspect was arrested. The mysterious culprit was identified only as an unemployed chauffeur who went by two possible nicknames, Louis or Frenchie. Eventually, the public would learn his real name was Georges Garay, a former boarder born in Paris with a wife and a mistress, and who might have played a role in once assaulting two young girls. But Garay had a solid alibi and was soon cleared in the triple slaying. Soon after the chauffeur was nixed from the suspect list, detectives learned that despite the way the crime scene had appeared to them initially, they perhaps had been a bit hasty in how they'd interpreted things. 
Initially, because Ronnie was nude and her mother Mary was partially disrobed and had some bruising on her thighs, police assumed they'd been sexually assaulted. The autopsy results show that there's no evidence of sexual assault, but the medical examiner deduces from the contents of Mary's stomach that she was murdered between 10 p.m. and midnight. That's the estimate for Mary's time of death. Ronnie, on the other hand, was out with friends and didn't get back until nearly 3 a.m. Based on that and the different stage of rigor mortis her body was in, authorities determined she had died at least three hours after her mother. That meant that the killer attacked Mary and then waited inside the apartment until Ronnie got home and then killed her too. That, in turn, suggested the killer was awfully damn comfortable inside that apartment. So police turned their attention to Joseph Gedeon. Wasn't it awfully convenient that the estranged husband was supposedly set to announce his reconciliation with his now-dead wife that very day? Plus, police didn't think he sounded suitably distraught. He didn't wax nostalgic about the years the two had lost in their separation. In fact, when police searched Joseph's rented room, they found a bunch of girly pics, the same type his daughter routinely posed for, and on top of that, Joseph spoke badly of his daughter for posing in those types of photos. Joseph described her as wild and promiscuous and said, in fact, it was because of Ronnie's craziness that I separated from her mother in the first place. Harold Schechter again, this time talking about the Gideon case to journalist Dan Zupansky. The primary person, you know, who the police focused on for quite a while uh, was Ronnie's own father, Joseph, you know, who was portrayed in the tabloids, you know, as a sexual degenerate, uh, largely because he had cheesecake photographs pinned to the walls of his apartment. Joseph made a certain amount of sense as a suspect. For starters, while he said he and Mary were reconciling, no one could corroborate that because, by his telling, the couple hadn't told their children yet, so the surviving daughter Ethel couldn't vouch for this. Second, while Ronnie might have been the higher profile and more titillating of the victims, it could have been that Mary was the target. You always look first, you know, to the husband or ex-husband or boyfriends. That was as true for Mary as it was for Ronnie. Maybe that's why reporters went out of their way to describe Mary as surprisingly attractive for her age. There was no lack of suspects. The Gideons had various male boarders who fell under suspicion. So it took a while. There were, after all, two other people living in the house. One was a woman who was out of state. She had an alibi. The other one was the third victim. The boarder, Joseph said, he only knew as the Englishman. That man was soon identified as a British-born waiter named Frank Burns. And could Joseph have suspected the Englishman was after his wife? Or his daughter? I mean, really, with his age, Burns was in his mid-30s, so really smack dab in the middle of the two women. It could have gone either way. Public opinion was immediately strong against Joseph, and not just for the obvious, it's always the husband, reasons. They had history on their side. One year earlier, also on Easter, in another Beekman Place apartment just blocks from the Gideons, there had been another murder. A young woman named Nancy Chitterton, who was an up-and-coming novelist and whose husband was an executive at NBC Radio at that time, 
was uh, raped and murdered in her home on Beekman Place. Nancy's body had been discovered by a pair of upholsterers who had arrived to deliver a love seat she'd had them recover. While Nancy's husband was initially a suspect, it turned out that it was, in fact, one of those upholsterers who'd supposedly found the body who'd been guilty of the murder. Joseph Gedeon was also an upholsterer and also had discovered the crime. People didn't trust him. Plus, police told reporters that they were pretty sure from the start that the killer wasn't a stranger. People familiar with the apartment noticed that just one item had seemingly gone missing, and that was a silly alarm clock with glow-in-the-dark hands. Former NYPD lieutenant-turned-author Bernard Whalen. There was still money in the apartment. The door is perfectly intact. Right away, these things lead detectives to believe that the perpetrator was somebody that the victims knew. Not only that, but Ronnie had a dog, a small, annoying little yipper of a Pekingese who barked incessantly at strangers. Detectives noticed this right away because as soon as they walked into the apartment, the little bugger started yapping and would not shut up. Yet, after canvassing neighbors, no one had heard the infamous fourth floor Vita barking. That's a reference to the musical Rent. This dog's real name was Tucci. Tucci knew Joseph and so wouldn't have barked at him. But that was also true of pretty much every tenant Mary and Ronnie had ever had. The dog was annoying as hell with strangers, but he warmed up pretty quickly otherwise, so he wasn't a very useful witness overall. Regardless, police zeroed in on Joseph hardcore, questioning him for a grueling 30 hours. So there's a lot of people coming in and taking cracks at Gideon, but despite all their efforts, they cannot get him to crack. So they decide to turn up the heat. He's kept awake for hours. He's uh, deprived of food. But he never cracked. He kept insisting he had nothing to do with the crime. Police didn't believe him, but an editor at True Detective Magazine was wondering if maybe Joseph Gedeon was being railroaded. Joseph's alibi had been that he had been out drinking all night and got home stupid drunk right around 3 a.m., True crime author Catherine Pellinero told A Crime to Remember that the editor sends one of his writers to the building where Joseph Gideon lived to really check out his alibi. The writer finds a neighbor who says that he did indeed see Joseph Gideon stumbling home drunk at 3 a.m. Now they have corroboration that Joseph Gideon was absolutely not there at 3 a.m. So he cannot be the murderer. That isn't the only role the detective rags played in trying to focus on the case either. As the days crept by, another editor got fed up with reading stories about Ronnie having had her death coming to her because of the sultry photos she took for pay. As Schechter said, The editor of Inside Detective Magazine publishes a very impassioned editorial explaining that Ronnie had taken on these jobs in order to make a living, uh, but that there was nothing questionable about her behavior. Ronnie might have been boisterous and lively, but everyone agreed that above all, she was a nice kid. She had potential as a model. She was fun to work with. She had a great sense of humor. She might have gotten her first gigs because of her figure, but she kept getting rehired because she was nice. Police were getting nowhere, and they knew it. They started to worry. Will we ever solve this awful case?
When detectives searched Mary and Ronnie's Beekman Place apartment looking for clues in the slang, they found that the young model kept a diary. Inside its pages, she had written about a man she referred to usually by the initial B. Sometimes she wrote about a guy named Bob, too. Police at first assumed these two characters, B and Bob, were the same person, and this was intriguing because it seemed clear that Ronnie was kind of afraid of B. If you remember, she'd been briefly married in her teens. She'd only been 16, in fact. Her ex-husband's name was Bobby Flowers. Bobby had been aggressive. It was clear from the diary that Ronnie had been scared of him. Naturally, Bobby was questioned, but he had a solid alibi. Not only that, but he seemed genuinely heartbroken about his ex-wife's murder. Ronnie was a sweetheart, he said. They hadn't worked as a couple because they'd been so young and he'd been so volatile, but no one who knew her could possibly want to actually harm her. Talking to police and later reporters, he said whoever did this to Ronnie should die for it. But some of the things Ronnie wrote in her diary about Bob didn't quite make sense. The passages referenced Bob having some kind of obsession with Ronnie's sister, Ethel. Bobby Flowers said that was nonsense. Ethel was pretty, too, and smart and sweet and all of that, but she wasn't his type. Ethel was the dark-haired, purse-lipped librarian to Ronnie's blonde-locked, free-spirited showgirl. There was a different Bob altogether, however, who had fancied Ethel. That man's name was Bob Irwin. Bob Irwin was an artist, sculptor. He had boarded with the family several years earlier. At first, this seemed a pretty big stretch. Bob Irwin had housed with the Gettians so long prior that they'd actually been at a different address then. Back then, Ethel was still living with her mother and Ronnie. She'd been engaged to Joseph Kudner, and in the years that had passed, she and Kudner had been married and usually lived together in their own place. Now, Ethel had been around Mary and Ronnie's newish apartment on and off because she would stay there if her husband was away. But she didn't live there and obviously wasn't there when the killer attacked. So it didn't seem to make much sense to dig much into this guy, Bob. But investigators had hit a wall, so they figured a little digging couldn't hurt. Bob Irwin had a fascinating backstory. Robert hadn't been his birth name. He had actually been born as Fenelon and was the middle of three children born to eccentric parents. His older brother was named Vitalin, his younger brother, Pember. His father was a self-styled preacher who abandoned the family. And his mother was a religious fanatic who put her religion ahead of her three sons. And three boys were sort of left to fend for themselves. When Bob Irwin was still known as Fenelon, he had a complicated relationship with his parents. He had been born in a gospel tent in Pasadena, California in 1907. Of the three kids, he was closest to his mom, often working to help her around the house. But as he grew older, he became jaded by his parents. Here he was, a child in need of love and food and clothes, but his parents were too busy, ostensibly with church, to provide any of that. Schechter talking to Dan Zupansky. Erwin's father, Benjamin, was almost a kind of stereotypical kind of character. 
a very, very charismatic preacher who would spend his Sundays railing against the evils of the modern world, which included everything from wearing neckties, which apparently was considered in his particular sect to be some kind of terrible, sinful symptom of modernity. He said he'd rather wear a rattlesnake around his neck than a necktie. Uh, to drinking Coca-Cola. So he would go around, as I say, every Sunday, giving these very hellfire and brimstone sermons against sin and corruption and so on and so forth, and then use all the money that he had collected uh, to go spend his time in whorehouses <laughs> and um, was ultimately, you know, excommunicated from his own church in disgrace. I'm thinking Daniel Day-Lewis should come out of retirement to play him in the movie. Benjamin Irwin was definitely flawed, but that doesn't mean he wasn't also devout. He grappled with his inner demons and tried to be a decent person, sometimes, in his own way. He was a leader in the holiness movement, which focused on cleansing one from original sin. The Reverend Benjamin had even founded a racially integrated denomination in 1898. By 1900, he was married to his first wife when a sexual scandal ended his career. Some two years later, he married a woman named Mary Lee Jordan, whom he met in Texas, which might have worked out better if he had bothered to divorce his other wife first. Like I said, definitely flawed. You'd have to say they were religious fanatics. His father, Benjamin, was actually the founder of an evangelical church called the Fire Baptist Holiness Church. Uh, His mother, uh, who was also very, very involved in the Pentecostal movement and various evangelical Christian movements, I mean, their lives were both consumed by this religious zealotry. The couple had their three sons in short order. The middle child was named after one of Benjamin's favorite theologians, Francois Fenelon, a French Catholic archbishop. That the child changed his name in his teens at all had to have upset his folks, but the new name he adopted was an outright rejection of his parents' religious fervor. Fenelon adopted the rather generic-sounding prename Robert to honor Robert G. Ingersoll, an agnostic often derisively referred to by churchgoers as injure soul. Get it? Because he had an injured soul? Irwin the one first named Fenelon, then called Bob, found Ingersoll's writings in the library and was hooked. He and Ingersoll had both been raised by ministers who, despite considering pretty much everything a sin, were really rather progressive on a lot of fronts, at least for the era, and were constantly butting heads with higher-ups because of it. So it doesn't seem like Bob 1 and, later, Bob 2's rejection of religion was as much in response to having been raised too strictly as it was probably to seeing their fathers harangued by the very church to which their lives were devoted. Now, that might explain why Bob Irwin was so keen to reject God's law, but what's less clear is why he opted to reject society's laws to boot. In fact, all three of the Irwin boys had rap sheets before they were even teenagers. Some of it was stealing bread because they were starving kind of stuff, but not all of it. These kids were smoking and drinking and sleeping with sex workers before they were even out of grade school. They stole cars and got picked up for various assaults. 
Strangely, Irwin's older and younger brothers had the longest criminal records, but his mother, Mary Lee Jordan, decided it was her middle boy who was the only irredeemable one, what with him reading about agnosticism and such. At least that's what she said. She told people that her middle kid, the one who'd once been something of a mama's boy in his youth, had been led astray by the devil, and she pointed to his Ingersoll devotion and name change as proof. But maybe she sensed something else, something darker that she couldn't quite articulate. Because on the surface, at least, Irwin really wasn't the same kind of criminal his brothers were. He had a terrible temper that often got him into trouble, but he was also incredibly smart and artistic. He loved sculpture in particular. Bob took his sculpting very seriously. He had gone to study with some noted artists some of whom took Bob under their wings and tried to help nurture his talent. And he really was talented. He'd create small busts of people based on photographs or proper model sittings and sell them for a decent bit of money. He was driven to become a great sculptor and landed apprenticeships and jobs that would seem likely to lead him down that path. But his temper often got in the way. He was fired again and again by getting so irritated with something that somebody else did in his immediate environment, they ended up getting into a physical altercation with them. From Schechter's book, which I'll now tell you is titled The Mad Sculptor, it sounds like Irwin had real deep-seated issues about masculinity. A lot of his fights seemed to start with someone saying something to him that he determined was a knock against his manhood. He constantly complained that people assumed he was gay or implied he was a sissy. It actually started with his parents, which on the surface isn't surprising. But the specific anecdote one doctor noted kind of floored me. One day when Irwin was seven or eight, he was helping his mother with the laundry. A neighbor came by and complimented the boy for helping his mom, which stood out because the other two boys never helped her in one bit. Instead of praising her middle child, Mother Mary Lee laughed and said something like, Yeah, he's just like a regular girl. When Irwin shared this story with a psychiatrist later, he remembered it making him so mad he could see blood. He had a hair-trigger temper. There was this recurrent pattern in which he would find himself in a certain situation and having made friends and being a success professionally and so on and so forth. And then inevitably something would happen that would trigger some really kind of homicidal outburst in him. Uh, And he would lash out at a friend or a benefactor or whatever. And, you know, and end up being fired from a job or or whatever. So so he he was very psychologically volatile personality. Sometimes his outbursts got him fired. Sometimes they landed him in jail, or worse. In reality, Bob Irwin doesn't sound like he was all that different from his own father. His dad became obsessed with the concept of sanctification, also known as Christian perfection. In short, it's the idea that someone can reach spiritual maturity by engaging in a process that leads to one's union with God. The Reverend Benjamin gave theatrical talks about the moment in October 1895 that he experienced baptism by fire. His son grew up to be equally obsessed with attaining some higher, almost godlike sense of purification, though it wasn't religiously rooted. 
Bob Irwin called this concept visualization, and it was the idea that, with proper training and focus, he could use his mind to somehow project images and information. The evolution of this obsession is a little convoluted, but bear with me. And at one point he read what was at that time, back in the 1930s, this best-selling book on the history of philosophy by a couple named Will and Ariel Durant. And in that book, uh, the Durants talk about Schopenhauer and, you know, Schopenhauer's whole theory of this universal will, which is the source of all energy in the universe. And Irwin got it into his head that if he could somehow channel or sublimate all his sexual energy into this effort to visualize, you know, he, this would enable him, you know, to achieve this power. He would lock himself in rooms for hours to practice his visualization skills, hoping to basically render 3D images with his brain. By manifesting this image, he'd then be able to simply replicate it with whatever material he wanted to use. Why, it would be so quick and easy that if Michelangelo himself saw it, he'd say, by God, how'd you do that, man? This is what Erwin tried to do, and when it wouldn't work, because of course it wouldn't, he'd blame himself, and more specifically, his sex drive. He began to feel that his, his libido, his sexual energy, uh, was somehow dissipating this power. So he decided that the best way to redirect his sexual energy towards this project of visualization was to castrate himself, basically, to cut off his penis. And so that's what he set out to do. Bob Irwin's idea to castrate himself sounds crazy enough, but wait until you hear about his actual attempt. We tied some rubber bands around his penis and rode around the New York City subway system until, you know, he felt he had anesthetized his penis and, you know, then went back to the boarding house he was staying in and took a Gillette razor blade and started to saw off his penis at its base. Spoiler alert, it started to hurt, so he stopped. He went to a hospital and asked for help finishing the job. They decided admitting him for psychiatric care might be a better idea. And uh, that's how we ended up in Bellevue Hospital and under the care of Frederick Wortham. Wortham was a well-known doctor with pretty ahead-of-his-time views on how your childhood can affect you for life. He was one of few American psychiatrists willing to treat black patients, which happened to lead him to cross paths with legendary attorney Clarence Darrow, who would sometimes call on Wortham to examine and testify on behalf of black defendants. In fact, Wortham testified in all sorts of high-profile trials, including that of Albert Fish, a cannibal, pedophile, serial killer. To be clear, he didn't testify that Fish was innocent, but rather that he was absolutely insane and therefore shouldn't be executed because if scientists were allowed to study him, maybe they could figure out how to predict and maybe even cure future Albert Fishes. Wortham was fascinated by Irwin, who must have seemed quite a novelty in comparison with many of his other clients. Wortham recognized from the start that in many ways 
Bob Irwin was a very, very exceptional human being, a person of unusual intelligence and sensitivity and great artistic talent. Werther himself was married to a well-known sculptor, so he was particularly appreciative of Bob's talent in that regard. It took some time, but Irwin eventually earned enough goodwill with Wortham and others at the hospital that he was allowed access to sculpting tools. He used them to fashion small busts of staffers for small fees. He socked away that money, hoping that once he was out of the hospital, he could live off his savings while attempting to perfect his visualization technique. It's clear Wortham knew all about this obsession of Irwin's. But he didn't seem to know as much about Irwin's unhealthy infatuation with a young woman he'd met named Ethel Gedeon. Bob had boarded with the Gedeons and quickly became infatuated with Ethel, who at first found him charming and well-read. And sometimes there's a fine line between someone's eccentricity pointing toward brilliance or madness. And it seems Ethel entertained it was possible that Irwin was a genius. But he was a poor genius with disturbing impulse control. So when Mary and Ronnie Gideon realized that Bob was setting his sights on Ethel, they intervened. They were polite about it. They liked the weird young fella. But Mary wanted her daughter to find a secure husband, one who didn't lose job after job because he lost control like Marty McFly every time someone called him yellow. Wortham didn't know much about Ethel, but he had worked with Irwin for years. He genuinely liked the guy and thought that they had made some decent progress in his treatment. Wortham had developed a kind of theory at that time called the cataphymic crisis. It was Wortham's theory of the source of a certain kind of homicidal violence. And uh, Bob Irwin seemed to epitomize to him this particular kind of uh, syndrome, which he felt was curable. You know, Wortham had this very, very, I think, probably naive and now kind of outmoded faith in the ability of psychoanalysis, ultimately to rid the world of violent crime. But every time Wortham thought he had made a breakthrough with his patient, Irwin would backslide. He'd been released a couple of years after his castration attempt. When Wortham was comfortable, he'd move past the fixation. Not that he wasn't still obsessed with visualization. He absolutely was and would talk at length about it to anyone who would listen. But he at least put to bed the notion that self-emasculation needed to be part of the plan. Still... Every time Irwin left the hospital, he would get wrapped up in thoughts of self-harm, often leading him to return, usually voluntarily. But back then, as is still the case now, there wasn't much a doctor could do if a patient wanted to leave and didn't appear to present a clear and present danger to himself or others. So Wortham could encourage Irwin to stay institutionalized, but if he wasn't threatening anyone, the doctor couldn't force him to. Years after the castration attempt, but not long before the Gideon murders, Wortham gave a speech in which he referenced his longtime patient as an unrecovered case of his so-called cataphymic crisis. Wortham said, quote, This man is not cured. He will break out again in some act of violence against himself or others. End quote. He had no idea how right he would be. 
What triggered the Easter Day violence in 1937 was an image. After obsessing over Ethel for days, Irwin had been staring out at the water, contemplating suicide. When the water before him began lifting and taking shape, he recognized the shape as Ethel's face. Convinced he was on the precipice of visualization, he decided the vision meant that he had to sacrifice Ethel to finally reach his goal. He went to Mary and Ronnie's place because he mistakenly believed Ethel lived there too. His plan was to kill her. He encountered Mary first and killed her, shoving her body beneath the bed. He lay in wait, probably expecting Ethel soon after. Instead, Ronnie came in. She'd been out with some friends and likely had avoided turning on lights so as not to rouse her mom. She'd gone to the bathroom and started undressing for bed. Irwin attacked so swiftly, she barely had any time to fight at all. The Englishman, Frank Burns, just had the bad luck of being there when all this happened. He hadn't even woken up, but because Irwin knew Burns had seen his face on a previous visit, he walked into the boarder's room and jammed an ice pick into his skull, killing him instantly. It took weeks for police to piece together the clues and land on Bob Irwin as a suspect. And by the time they did, he was gone. He'd left town through Grand Central Station, leaving behind a suitcase that, once police discovered it, tied him directly to the crime. Remember that missing alarm clock? The one with the -the glow-in-the-dark hands? Catherine Pellinero again. They find the alarm clock missing from the Gettian apartment. Physical evidence that actually links Bob Irwin to the murders. Police no longer had any doubt. Irwin wasn't just their suspect, he was their killer, but he was gone. He probably could have stayed gone too, but instead he reached out to a newspaper editor and announced he wanted to surrender, after they paid him for an exclusive confession, that is. After that was published, through a plea deal, he was sentenced to life in prison, but prison officials deemed him insane, so he instead spent the rest of his life in a psychiatric institute where at first he kept trying to attain his visualization goal, but then, slowly but surely, gave it up as the fantastical pipe dream Dr. Wortham had politely told him years earlier that it was. Irwin gave up art and died of cancer in 1975. To research this case, I read Harold Schechter's book, The Mad Sculptor, and dug up interviews with him discussing the case around 2014. The Such a Pretty Face episode of A Crime to Remember was hugely helpful for audio. I also read contemporary news coverage and dug into genealogical records. There are a few weird little tidbits about this case that are interesting but not vital, so if you're curious, be sure to check out our social media posts. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, 
For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.